21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Good Judgment Inc. is the commercial successful successor to this phenomenally successful research project. It is possible to improve forecast accuracy for individuals, for teams, for organizations. And you do that by mitigating cognitive biases, you do it by reducing noise, you do it by having effective information sharing on teams. And you get it at an organizational level by asking the right questions. What is it you're trying to forecast is as important as the forecast itself. That's what we specialize in, and we deliver our services by showing organizations how to do it themselves, because we have the best in the business and we can show you how to do it. We also do it by providing forecasts from our panel of super forecasters, who thus far are unbeaten, have an unrivaled track record over many, many years uh, with cumulative experience uh, going decades and decades of assigning precise probability estimates to uncertain events. So that organizations can uh, outsource that function to an independent panel who can give them the best and they can use that in their own modeling and spend their energies elsewhere as they work with us. Do you have any book launch at the moment? So we uh, we came out of a book okay. that's uh, still in wide circulation called Super Forecasting that was uh, a summary of the research project that the company came out of. Um, we have launched, we have two main things that we do at this point. One is uh, we have launched a subscription service mainly directed toward institutions to help quantify uncertain geopolitical mainly events, but all, uh, and also macroeconomic. That's our game is to convert forecasts that are usually expressed in verbal language. Maybe it'll happen. There's a distinct possibility into precise numbers that you can then use in your modeling and that you can compare against our track record. So if there's um, if there's a, uh, we have forecasts in particular on COVID, for instance, where, you know, what's the caseload going to look like? We have a number that we can provide, not an opinion, but we also provide context, right? So alternative data will give you a number, but usually not context. Experts will give you a lot of story, but no number, no accountability. We're at the intersection where we do both. We'll give you the number, but we'll also tell you what's the driver. What are the risks? What are the key sources you should be paying attention to? And we deliver that mainly to institutional clients, but we also have a biweekly summary that we provide for individuals. The other main thing we do for our clients is provide training. So how do you do it, right? So we, the research project found out ways to improve individual and team-based forecasting accuracy. And we have distilled it down to what are the best practices that you as an individual or a team can do to enhance your own, your own insight. And we deliver those best practices in interactive training sessions, uh, mostly for organizations, but we also 
do it publicly. Those are our main two things that we're doing these days. IARPA uh, wrote that you have beat the control group by 50%. So they are, if I understood it well, uh, specific uh, geopolitical events uh, forecast for political, economic and social spectrum. That's right, yeah. So IARPA is um, funded by the US government to take on um, speculative research, really. That's their task is to find different experiments that have maybe a low probability of succeeding, but if they do, can have very significant, powerful uh, payoffs. And so they, they expect that most projects that they fund will fail, uh, but every once in a while they'll find a project that really succeeds. This is one such project. And what they do is once they uh, find that a project succeeds, the funding is finite, right? It doesn't go on forever. This is four years. But then they'll very much support the commercialization of those findings. This is one way to demonstrate the efficient use of taxpayer money, of course, if these findings also find use out, of, out in, the, in the commercial world. By commercial world, I should say, that includes government as well as nonprofit and private sector. We have clients across the spectrum who are finding value in, the, in these findings, which is really rewarding. And when you say social spectrum, are you talking about uh, context that you spoke about uh, before? Or what, what's the social spectrum in geopolitical for, uh, events forecast? Our client list includes government entities, uh, especially defense intelligence. That is no surprise considering who under uh, wrote the original research, uh, but it also includes nonprofits. And what's really interesting is that, for instance, we've been at uh, sessions where somebody from a defense agency will be sitting next to an aid agency and they are both focused on the same part of the world trying to better understand those geopolitical risks so that they can uh, forecast and, and provision accordingly. And they have a shared interest in understanding and, and quantifying that uncertainty, even though their ultimate missions are, are often quite, quite, quite different. And that kind of exchange of views from very different perspectives is, is one of the really uh, powerful forces in improving our insight, where if we have different perspectives that we're bringing to bear on an uncertain event, and we find that we're coming to similar conclusions, that's powerful. Because if we're all from the same schools, we read the same books, we read the same reports, we're clones of each other. There's not much uh, to be gained from having a discussion with, among clones, but having a discussion across people with very different backgrounds uh, can really accelerate the learning for the benefit of everybody involved and lead to better policy decisions. Now, factor in also private sector perspectives where they're, uh, they're trying to understand the same things with per perhaps different goals, uh, but if they can separate their goals from what they're trying to understand and have a shared um, uh, dialogue about what it is they're trying to understand, that can be powerful. This gets to the idea of, of how you construct teams as well. 
Often it's the case, certainly in my old industry, I came out of finance asset management, where portfolio teams often are deliberately composed of people who have similar views. And this is seen as a good thing. Oh, you went to my school, I'll come on board. This will be great, we'll all get along. We all speak the same language. Um, that may be, have some benefit in terms of the culture of the team, but you really lose out on different perspectives by filtering out people from different backgrounds. And we've seen that time and time again, this is one of the really powerful things. So if you can combine people who have a perspective that's geopolitical with people who have a social and with people who have an economic, and they're all trying to understand the same thing. They're filling in a mosaic, right? It's another way to think about it. We have a mosaic, we're trying to figure out what it says. We all have different tiles that we're filling in. And if we all possess the same tile, we're not gonna get very far, but if we have different tiles and we can contribute to it, we all benefit and get to a better understanding of what that picture is gonna be much faster than anybody else. And for those for forecasts, uh, what are the input sources? So um, the input sources that we have, uh, that we use typically are very much public, right? So if you have a team um, where you're uh, working internally on something sensitive, you'll have a you'll look to find diversity within your organization, and they'll have access to perhaps some sensitive information that is not public. So that's that's one area where you can use this kind of approach even without public information. But for most things that are really consequential out in the world, there is a lot of public information available. In fact, that's the thing, there's almost too much information available and it can be bewildering what information counts that you should pay attention to and which information is not terribly useful that you should filter out. This is, um, and this is, and then a, a more formal way to think about that is you want to find information that correlates with what you're trying to understand. That's going to be signal. And you want to filter out data and information that does not correlate with what you're trying to understand. This is what Daniel Kahneman in his book with his colleague calls noise, right? This is, this is information that does not give you an understanding of what you're trying to understand. And so having a team is one of the ways that you can efficiently identify the information that matters and boost your signal and filter out the information that does not, the noise. What's the minimum knowledge for understanding those forecasts? So if you're an organization and you have your own internal team, that kind of, uh, that uh, you'll, you'll answer your own question. But we also provide um, forecasts on these sorts of events with our panel of super forecasters. These are the people who came out of the research and were identified as being in the top 2%. This was not part of the original research project, by the way. They were very experimental. They did not have a, a rigorous research design. They wanted to try everything and see what small interventions can cumulatively add up to a big boost in, in forecast accuracy. And in the process of doing that, 
they observed that some people were just consistently better than the rest. Uh, and they called those people, they gave them the label super forecasters, right? And, 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 the, and the hypothesis that they wanted to test was if, if they were put on, on teams, right? Uh, elite teams of like-minded and uh, individuals, would they get better or would they revert to the mean? A lot of the researchers thought there'd be a reversion to the mean. It turned out they got even better. Um, and by they, I should say we, because that's how I got involved, was as a test subject. And I came up through the ranks in the, in the second year to be one of these super forecasters. And what we've done on the business side is we've set up a service where clients will pose their questions to this panel of a couple hundred super forecasters. And what they do is operating again in teams is they will scour all the publicly available information sources, identify what's useful, filter out what, what is not, and then quantify as individuals what they think the probability of an event will occur. And they'll, they'll do that by individually uh, synthesizing everything that's out there. So it's not just one information source, it's all information sources that every forecaster will have access to. And then what we do is we take the crowd, the wisdom of that crowd, the best possible crowd, and put all that together into an aggregation that we deliver to users. And we then do a third thing. We do, uh, we use an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm to overweight the more accurate forecasters on particular subjects uh, to squeeze out even more signal. And that's, and that's what we'll deliver to our, to our clients on, on topics that they propose. What's the human-based, uh, AI-based ratio in forecasting? Uh, well, there's a division of labor. That's a great question. Is how do, how do we think about about that? And it's very much a hybrid uh, that's that, that that we see here. And it's been a hybrid forever, right? Because even the word computer, I think, is it's fascinating. The word computer used to be a person. Oh, nice. With, with an adding machine, and you know, type it in. That was a computer. But then at some point, and the machines were able to do it faster and better than the humans, which freed up time for the humans to focus on other things. So by having that division of labor where machines can do the heavy lifting and humans can do the things the machines can't, uh, we end up with a, with a better, 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 uh, better, more accurate forecast across the board. And where humans excel, is in the synthesis of conflicting information, right? So the algorithms can be very good if the data is constant, if what we've seen in the past persists in a meaningful way into the future. Machines are less good at identifying new variables that are getting typically omitted by the algorithms because they're not part of the calculation and may go unnoticed, but can be very consequential. That's one of the reasons that um, I think um, uh, during the early days of COVID, there was a lot of disappointment in the formal models because they weren't able to recognize that the model's uh, inputs had, uh, had been uh, upended. 
And this is where, where human judgment comes into play and to start saying, well, wait a second, things aren't working. What else is going on that we need to pay attention to? How much weight should we attach to those things? And, and, and how do we do a synthesis? So it's judgment where humans continue to excel, but the more the machines can do, the better. That absolutely includes AI, where there are phenomenal advances being made that will, again, uh, assist humans to spend more time where they excel, which is on, which is on, which is on judgment. So you help those people with your training programs? For individuals and organizations where they want to bring these skills internally, they want to improve the wisdom of their own crowd, we will work with them to go through what are the best practices, what are the things that we can do to improve the way we uh, quantify an uncertain future. There are cognitive biases, for instance, that we all possess. And what are some of the ones that most interfere with um, being accurate in our forecasting? And what are the things that we can do to mitigate those effects? Cognitive biases, and they're cognitive biases that we're talking about here. They can be really tough to completely remove, but there are things that we can do to offset them or minimize their effects. For instance, one of the big ones, one of the large ones is, is confidence. Most people are overconfident. Most people are so overconfident that if you tell them you're overconfident, they'll say, no, that's not me, that's that guy. Right? So what we'll do in our training sessions is we'll go through some exercises where, oh yeah, lo and behold, that's everybody. We all fall prey to being overconfident. Um, and it's actually, uh, I think, uh, I believe I had this right. Daniel Kahneman was asked recently, the Nobel laureate, if he could wave his hand and get rid of one cognitive bias for all time, what would it be? And he said, confidence, being overconfident. It's that pernicious. But there are things that you can do. And it really is um, by, by being aware that when you think you're 90% confident about something, it might be closer to say 50%, that can give you an opportunity to check yourself, right? So if somebody says, what's the probability of some event occurring. So let's uh, you know, pick anything. Now, who's gonna win the French elections next year? You say, oh, I'm 90% confidence at so-and-so. Your confidence, if you look at your own track record and measure it and get that feedback, might show that when you're 90% confident, those events actually occur only 50% of the time. So that's a great piece of feedback. So when you think you're 90% confident about something, maybe it's more like 50. And so you should slow yourself down, rethink things a bit, do a little bit more research. And just that step alone can make a measurable difference in the accuracy you make. These are things that you can do that don't take a lot of time that can pay huge dividends, like keeping confidence in check. We are speaking about geopoli uh, uh, geopolitical uh, forecasting, among other things. Uh, 
so what's what's the what's the spectrum are those countries just uh, like commonwealth and europe union or do you cover in in your in your inputs uh middle east and india yeah i should have sent before and i will send after this i'll send you some samples of the questions that we've been covering and um, the original research was very much focused on geopolitics and macroeconomics. That's a reflection of the sponsors, right? That's what they were interested in. And uh, it was an open question whether these same approaches would deliver similar results in other domain areas. Uh, and it turns out, yes. Uh, we look for, the, it's more the characteristic of the question that we're trying to answer that matters. If it's a topic where there's a, it's, there's a lot of information that's publicly available and that a lot of that information is uh, in conflict. That's where this kind of approach pays the most dividends. If it's not public, then it gets, uh, they're, 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 it, it can resolve to chance or decisions made behind closed doors. So for instance, a lot of topics related to the European Union policy decisions are decided in smoke-filled back rooms, right? And so, you know, the, the leading countries will cut a deal without anything public going on. Where that goes on, this kind of an approach won't be terribly useful. Um, the other is if there's um, already uh, high quality forecasts available, if, for instance, in deep liquid markets, so forecasting the price of oil, there's really not much point to go to all this effort because you can just go to the futures markets and get a really good number. But that leaves a lot of the world where uh, there's public information and a lot of uncertainty about how to interpret and quantify that. Uh, and that, and that's, 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 that's our area. And, and, and those kinds of characteristics exist in many, many areas, not just geopolitics. It can be the launch of a new product it can be the success of a new entrepreneurial initiative. It can be uh, the potential for a new drug to deliver the desired results. It can be what is the probability that such a drug, such as uh, the, the, the COVID vaccines, uh, will be administered and accepted by uh, an, uh, an unpredictable human population, right? It's one thing to say that the pharmaceutical companies are on track to the, uh, create a drug, it's a different thing to forecast whether people will take it. And you really need to have both elements. And it's that second area where this kind of an approach can be particularly useful. I got money in the bank, on my waist, on the clear, I got one in the fifth. Any ethical issues regarding the forecasting future? Anything ethically uh, questionable. Me as a forecaster, um, especially on more emotional issues, where I have a view about how the world should be, it can be quite challenging for me to separate my view of how the world should be to how I think probabilistically the world will be. I may have a view about an election outcome, and it makes it very difficult for me to put those beliefs at the door and put on my white lab coat 
when I sit down to make a forecast. Uh, uh, but really, that's what I need to do if I'm going to be a useful forecaster, where my task is to deliver the best probabilistic estimate about whatever that, that question might be. And it gets more challenging the more emotional the topic becomes. And that's certainly the case, say, with COVID-related questions or anything involving disease outbreaks, anything where the consequences can be quite uh, daunting to even contemplate, to check my beliefs at the door. But that's, that's my, my job though. And, and that's why it's so valuable when you're trying to put together a probability estimate that you do so in an environment where it's possible to check your beliefs at the door in that way. And so that's why we will pose questions very narrowly, very specifically. What is the probability of event X happening by date Y? We're trying to make sure that what I think the world should do is not influencing the way I'm forecasting about the way it actually will be. In many cases, it becomes too daunting. And uh, super forecasters even will say, on this topic, I'm just too involved. I'm gonna step inside and contribute my, 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 my talents elsewhere. And, and it, it's tough, but that's, that's really the way to do it. One, one solution, so there are different ways you might mitigate that effect, right? And, and one that um, one of our colleagues has come, has come up with is he'll say, when I am uh, forecasting these really emotional topics, I try and imagine that I'm a Martian anthropologist. I'm looking at this from an entirely different planet and just trying to understand it and study it with as much distance, literally, as possible to come up with my, the best estimate I can as possible. It's not flawless by any means, it's not easy by any means, but it is the way to come up with what really matters, which is an accurate probability estimate that's independent of, of, of personal views. Uh, the alternative to doing that is to either not provide any forecast whatsoever or leave the field for people who have only opinions and polarize the discussion and polarize the debate. And that, as we've seen so many times, uh, is, is, uh, will lead to far worse outcomes far more often. The other perspective is as a user of the forecast, right? So if you're in a position to influence the outcome of these events and you are now in possession of a high quality probability estimate, if, if, if you have policy goals that are suspect, uh, you're now equipped to do things more efficiently that are contrary to what are the best interests for most, most people. An example of that is um, when we think about uh, uh, tail event risk, existential risk in particular, right? So if, um, if you um, posed a question to our super forecasters about the probability of say a disease outbreak um, because of um, a breakthrough in some uh, genetic engineering 
that would lead to something 10 times worse than COVID, right? What is the probability of that occurring? That in the wrong hands could be uh, a, a very uh, negative piece of information. And that's a concern that many people have that they actually go to the extent of saying forecasts on those sorts of topics should be avoided for that very ethical reason. Uh, it's a, it's a, it, these are new frontiers that are presenting new ethical issues that we're still trying to think through. And that's a real world example of the sorts of challenges that you were suggesting uh, really uh, do exist and are as yet unresolved. Why, while I like to think that I've got an entrepreneurial spirit, um, I certainly do not have, I did not come into this position with formal education about how do you be an entrepreneur? And I'd be really interested to know what percentage of entrepreneurs do have that formal background. Because here's one of the key findings that I think is immensely fascinating is the role of experts versus skilled generalists in thinking about forecasting and uncertain events, right? So experts tend to be very good at telling us how we got to where we are. So in the case of COVID, experts were very good at saying, this is what happened, these are, these are the, but where they did not do so well is synthesizing and putting it all together as all the variables got mixed up and new things came in that weren't in their formal models. And one of the reasons for that is that by definition, experts will have what Daniel Kahneman calls an inside view. They will be focused on the particulars of the situation in front of them. Um, and the, the great example that Phil Tetlock gives in his book, and we've used it many times, is imagine you're at a wedding, right? And, 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 and you're sitting next to me. And, and I go, so what do you think the odds are this one's going to succeed, right? And after you are horrified that I would ask such a question, uh, you'd say, well, look, it's a happy couple. Um, it's a match made in heaven. Of course, this is going to last. But here's the thing. Imagine that you have the even worse luck of going to, say, a thousand weddings with me. And you come back in five years, not all 1,000 are going to make it. There's going to be some percentage that do and some percentage that doesn't. And that's going to be informed by the outside view, as Kahneman called it. What does history tell us? What is the comparison class for these things, uh, for marriages in this case, to succeed? And maybe it's like 50%, uh, not all of them. Uh, so now when you are asked at the next wedding you go to, uh, the first question you should ask yourself is, well, what's the base rate for marriages to succeed? Because the reality is the happy couple is noise. That is not information that will correlate with the outcome because how many weddings have you been to where there's not a happy couple? So ignore the happy couple, ignore the top hats and tails and start with the base rate instead. And then you start to synthesize and weave in 
the particulars of the situation. And what, how this relates to forecasting is when you're thinking about uncertain events with a limited data set, the experts will tend to be focused on that inside view. They're not going to be uh, focused on looking for different base rates and combining them the way a skilled generalist will. So how does this relate to entrepreneurship? Well, entrepreneurs usually are going to be, by definition, convinced that they have got the thing and they're going to avoid all the mistakes that everybody else made because they're special. But the thing is, being special is a conclusion to be made, not an assumption to start with. You should, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, if you take a super forecasting approach and say, okay, what is the base rate for entrepreneurs to succeed? Okay, now, and maybe get a little narrower. What area am I in? And what does that base rate look like? And then you can start to narrow in and find out the ones that didn't make it. What did they do that caused them to fail? And what did the ones do who succeeded lead them to succeed? And the thing is that if you are formally trained to be an entrepreneur at business schools and the like, maybe, and I'm only speculating here, you may come pre-equipped with models of the world that are insufficiently flexible to adapt to the inevitable mistakes that you're going to be making. Now, what is the base rate for major pivots for entrepreneurs? It's probably pretty significant. I hear different numbers. I'm not sure just what the right number is, but it's going to be more than one. And expecting to learn from mistakes, I think, is probably something that we see uh, uh, pretty, pretty prominently in successful entrepreneurs. So that's certainly something we've experienced by all means as we try and commercialize these research findings and turn it into a business is, yes, indeed, We've taken some paths that did not work. And yes, indeed, we've had to pivot and learn from those mistakes and try and do things that will improve our odds of success. Our super forecasters, by the way, are spread across the world. They are on every inhabited planet. They all speak multiple languages on average. They have multiple degrees on average. Uh, and, uh, and But what they all have in common is that they have years of experience at being expert forecasters. And that is valued by our clients also around the world. Uh, maybe a third in North America, a third is in Europe, especially the United Kingdom, and a third the rest of the world. And it's spread across uh, areas too, a lot in government and defense intelligence, but a lot are in finance. That's where a lot of our work has been is with asset managers who, uh, who uh, by definition are trying to quantify an uncertain future each and every day. And like us, they keep score each and every day. And like us, they are comfortable being held accountable for their views as they, as they keep score. So we found that to be particularly rewarding, but this is something that's in the air. It's not just us, other firms, there's other research that's going on where this kind of an approach to thinking about an uncertain future 
is getting broader recognition, especially in pharma, especially in energy. It's becoming customary for economists even to when they give their forecast, they'll give not only a number, but the probability that they think that that number will be met. It should be, if we do it right, as customary to attach a probability to a forecast about anything as it is in weather and as it is in sport. It's perfectly normal to say what the odds are of a team winning. It's perfectly normal to say what the odds are of rain a week from now. It should be just as normal to say what are the odds of an election outcome being this way or that. And that's really a big part of our mission. And it's gratifying to see that it's a mission that is shared increasingly in the public, private, nonprofit sectors. Twenty first century entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.